Hi, I'm Barnaby Cook and welcome to The Exit Plan, a podcast for business owners that are interested in learning more about how to sell their business. Each episode, I interview someone who's bought or sold a business, either a creative agency or a production company. The conversation gets under the skin of why they wanted to sell or were looking to acquire, how the deal was structured, how they agreed upon evaluation, and what lessons they learned along the way. Here we go. Today's episode is a little different as Angela isn't a production company or agency owner herself at the moment, although she has been in the past. Uh, she currently runs a consultancy called Every Sense, and she works with various clients who she has advised on their exits. So she's very knowledgeable about the subject. Angela and I have known each other for many years through working together in the corporate video industry. What I like about Angela's approach is that she's a big advocate of the importance of finding your niche in business. And she talks about how that can really help your business define itself and find the right clients and grow, but it can also help attract the right kind of buyer. She touches on some important aspects of buying and selling businesses, including the importance of cultural alignment during acquisitions and getting the balance right between the creative and the operational elements of a business. And she emphasizes the importance of clean financial records. We all need those, don't we? And if you are looking to sell your business, how important it is to start thinking about that as early as possible. Hope you enjoy our conversation. So yeah, I mean, why don't we just start with you giving us a bit of introduction to who you are? Yeah, yeah, okay, Barnaby. So my name is Angela Law. I run a consultancy called Every Sense, and we work with creative agencies and production companies, mostly on their forward strategy and on their value proposition. Okay, and how long have you been doing that for? I have been doing that for about 20 years. Okay. I mean, you and I have worked together before and you know we've both been in the industry for quite a while but you had your own production company before you started every sense is that right yes absolutely so my background was in marketing for publishers that was my original kind of career which I did love and gave me some so I'm always fundamentally I'm a marketeer I've just kind of put it to different kind of purposes really and I did some work with BBC Publications and that led to an opportunity to join a very small kind of production company. This was a considerable time ago, right at the point when production opportunities were opening up on broadcast and also non-broadcast. And I joined a small team and stayed there and we were there and we grew it. I was a minority shareholder, but we grew it and sold it. And it was just so interesting to see that whole process. Yeah. So when was this and what type of work were you doing? Because I know the industry's changed, you know, even in the time I've been in it. So this was back in the early 90s when that all happened. And I guess from the point of view of the work, what was interesting really was that when I joined, and again, it was kind of very much infancy days, they'd done a really good and successful Channel 4 documentary but I think documentaries have kind of gone in and out of fashion and in and out of budget. And in those days, getting a documentary off the ground was really a labour of love. Nobody was going to give you much money to do it. And they asked me to come in and look both at the broadcast side and the kind of beginnings of the non-broadcast side. And rather, because of my time at BMC Publications, I knew 
how popular cookery programs were for the BBC, and I knew how much money they were making out of books that went with the cookery programs. And so somewhat at random, having heard them on the radio, I said, why don't we do a cookery show with the Rue brothers? And they went, okay then, call them. So I rang the Rue brothers and said, hey, do you want to do this cookery thing? Like the Delia Smith type show. And they were very charming. And I went down there and I remember they gave me a glass of champagne, which always helps a discussion along. And to cut a very long story short, we did do the Rue brothers program and we did do the book. And I think partly as a result of looking at that success, we then looked around, or the team looked around and thought, okay, how can we develop this into a stream of activity? And as a result of that, brought in a guy, we was then called Peter Bazalgette, now Sir Peter Bazalgette, who had a program, magazine program called the Food and Drink Program. And so I think the feeling then was, okay, we can build out this idea of doing something successfully more and more. Peter came in, he took that and ran with it to a phenomenal degree. And so I think the first show out of that idea was Ready, Steady, Cook. And from that, the whole kind of factual entertainment element of the company, Peter and the team then developed to a significant degree. Meanwhile, on the non-broadcast side, I remember being in a board meeting where I said that in line to a large extent with my own kind of interests in a way, I said, I think we should specialise in the non-broadcast side in education and training. And I remember the non-exec, whose name I can't remember, I'm ashamed to say, but I remember his words because it sounded with me. He said, that's the most sensible thing and you've got in that said for a while and so we did specialize in education and training at that time there was massive government expenditure on that kind of work i don't think you find that now and so we did become specialists in that from the non-broadcast side and so i guess my experience is not so much of this just partly the sale itself but the antecedents that led to a successful sale the antecedents that led to a successful sale were very much this idea of what are you going to be bringing to us? Where are you going to really focus and dominate the market? And certainly the company as it was came to be very dominant on the broadcast side in that factor and staying and element and the whole format sales, which is why it was eventually sold to Endemol, Endemol Shine as now is, et cetera, et cetera. And the same on the non-broadcast side. I think it's that idea of being a specialist, being amongst a sea of generalists. How are you going to be better than anybody else at something? And how is that going to make you a really attractive proposition, not just for your ideal target market and clients, but potentially also for buyers in the future? That's very interesting. So actually, the concept of finding something that you can be famous for or the best at not only helps your business model while you're running your business, but it also helps make it a more attractive proposition in the event of a sale. That's certainly been my experience. And I think it's been our experience when we have supported some of our clients through a sale as well. I'm sure it's not, you know, looking at the marketplace, that's not ubiquitous. You know, sellers sell for a number of reasons, buyers buy for a number of reasons, but certainly it has helped to make those companies to help those agencies and companies have a really clear sense of direction 
and to have a number of key things that a buyer might look for. So I know this is all reaching far into the past, but can you sort of talk me through how the deal came about, why the shareholders wanted to sell, how they went about putting it on the market or were they approached? I think the principals thought the shareholders at the time did kind of feel, look, we've taken these things and we've grown it substantially and it now has a, a wider value. And by that time, things had moved on a considerable number of years had gone past since the details I was telling you. And so it had grown considerably. And to be honest, I think the major shareholders thought, as I think a lot of other company owners will think, what's going to happen next? What do we want to do? We've developed something, we've grown it, it's successful. But what do we want to do next? Do I want to realise some value from it? Which they certainly did. And also, I think the other driver towards it, which again can often be a really positive driver for sellers, is not just to kind of go, okay, well, I've run my company, my production company, or my agency, I've done my time, now I'm looking at kind of retirement, I want to get some value out of it. I think they also thought there are other opportunities here. We can bring people in who can help us scale even further and can help us develop into new marketplaces and bring new skills in and bring us new opportunities. So I think it was those mix of things that were the motivation behind it. Yeah, no, absolutely. The reason that a lot of people kind of consider is, you know, a lot of entrepreneurs, they grow their business, they find that sort of growth phase really exciting, they achieve a certain scale, perhaps the growth slows down a bit. And then it's a case of professional development a lot of the time. It's kind of what's next, you know, how do I learn and grow? A hundred percent. And I think if you can go into it with that kind of mindset, I think that's a kind of really interesting point in terms of what's the purpose of the sale? What do you want to achieve? And is what you want to achieve the same as your partners or other shareholders want to achieve? And certainly my business partner, Peter, and I have witnessed examples where clearly the shareholders weren't aligned on what they wanted to achieve out of a sale. And therefore, that kind of reveals those cracks in terms of their different opinion of what the future for the company kind of might look like. And that can be quite a revealing kind of process. And we've certainly seen examples where those sales haven't worked necessarily terribly well because the two partners are getting something rather different out of it. One of them wanted perhaps to join something bigger and go on and develop something whereas another potentially wasn't so keen. I mean, a lot of people run their own companies because they have very strong ideas, creative ideas. They want to do it the way they want to do it. And they do find that joining another entity, potentially a bigger entity, with a lot more structure, a lot of different demands, and also potentially that demand for results because they'll buy out will very often have that element of continuing success. And often people can find that quite challenging. So during your kind of 20 years at Every Sense, where you've supported a whole range of businesses across the industry, can you just talk me through sort of some of the examples of sales that you've been through and who the sort of eventual buyers were? Interestingly enough, the two examples that spring to mind are examples of where the companies have actually sold to a past client, which is interesting. So the first example would be 
with a company that was called uh, Change Tracking. And I was introduced to them by Peter Cheese from the CIPD because I'd done some work in helping the value proposition of a company that he was a shareholder in. And Change Tracking was a company that helped organizations to go through big change processes, in particular, big IT implementation processes. And what they'd done was to gather and very intelligently use huge amounts of data that demonstrated the typical journey to an RT transformation that organizations would go through. And that data and the way they analyzed it showed them that the things that people thought would cause a problem with IT transformation were often not the things that actually caused the problem. And so through the use of this data and the analysis, they were able to guide people through that process much more effectively and more cost-effectively, bearing in mind that those kinds of processes are multi-million pound transformation processes and have a massive effect on the company. So they had developed that and it was working very well at a certain scale. They had gone down the road of saying, oh, okay, maybe we can apply this methodology to other types of transformation process and other types of organization and we went through a value proposition process and really ended up saying, do you know what, where this is so important is where it minimizes the risk for those people for whom the risk is highest, i.e. the larger companies who invest in fantastic budgets into IT transformation and need to get fantastic outcomes from it. So i.e. those organizations for whom the risk is very high. So we honed the proposition around that, they honed their marketing around that and carried on developing it like that. One of their biggest clients was Accenture. So Accenture started to use and work with them to apply with their clients and they sold to Accenture because Accenture could see the potential in it. Do you think the access to data was a large aspect of that deal? The data and the fact that they had IP on the process that they'd created in order to analyze that. So the data and the IP that they owned were absolutely critical in that style. Yeah. Were you working with them through the sale? I was helping negotiate the sale. I was on the sidelines in terms of what did I think? How did all that go? What was going to happen next? In actual fact, I think that was an example where buying for the major shareholder in that company, it was a very successful sale because he went on to work within Accenture doing what he was brilliant at in terms of kind of what his interests were and what his kind of specialism was really. So that was very positive for him, both financially initially, because the value of the company, let's actually drill down into this Barnaby, because it's a really interesting point we've raised there. It meant that the value of the company was not predicated on past results. You know, those traditional formulas of what's the multiple of past EBITDA or whatever, okay? The value of that company was not predicated just on that. The value of that company was predicated on what Accenture saw was the potential of that IP and application within Bradley. So they tied the founder into an earnout, presumably? Absolutely. Tied the founder into an earnout, but he stayed there working after that because 
it was a good place for him to be. I think that's often the sign of a sort of an acquisition that's suitable for sort of both parties is if the founder stays on beyond the earn out. Because quite often there are cases where, you know, they will do their earn out and then they're straight out the door because it wasn't, wasn't what they expected and they don't like working for someone else. That's so true. And that certainly happened, Ellie Hawk said, for example. They went straight out of the door, but they were out of the door as soon as it could reasonably occur. In mergers and acquisitions, how do you think you should balance the sort of the creative aspects of the business with the business side of what needs to be going on? And I guess it's a, it's a question really about the importance of cultural fit as well between the acquirer and the, the seller. Yeah, I think that's a very good point is that I think it's a question in a way of in some way having the same values and ethos, even if the experiences and knowledge of the buyer and the seller are quite different. You must be as so though you've got some common grounds in terms of what you want to achieve and why and what your motivation is for kind of being in business altogether. Inevitably, if you're a smaller company selling to a larger one, especially again, if you're a production company selling to a much bigger production outfit, then there are going to be kind of differences. Part of the issue, again, with the types of companies that I tend to work with, is that a lot of them have always been either creatives or entrepreneurs, and they've never had the experience of seeing how a company runs at scale and what it needs to run at scale. And that's part of the bit that's missing in the armory for their growth sometimes, is that they don't have the background experience of that to be able to imagine that forward. It's kind of like, well, how would I have a team that that was that big? How would I have those processes? How would I run something through a board and a management team where they were in charge of everything, etc.? So although the experience of the buyer and seller might be quite different, they do need to have, you've got to feel as an individual talking to somebody who you're going to sell to, I think you would want to feel that you had some core ideas at heart that you shared. You'd want to feel as though you wanted to spend time with them. And I think if you thought, oh, okay, it doesn't matter. Well, it's your choice, isn't it, as to what you want to get out of it. You know, if you thought, actually, I've done my time, they want to buy it, I'm going to get you know, a reasonable amount up front and now I'm going to do a bit of time to get my own out and then I'm out of there. I don't know. My suggestion would be that that's going to be a pretty uncomfortable process because that earn out, you know, it doesn't happen in a week, two weeks. It's a detailed process, you know, it's a length of time and things are going to be very different for you. That's a sort of interesting point, actually, just which brings us on to kind of valuations and kind of what sort of deal structures have you seen? And the reason I ask this is I think because people don't necessarily have experience of this when they think about selling their business, they just think it's going to be a big payday, right? They're just going to be able to sell their business, they get all the money on day one, and they get to walk off into the sunset. Yeah, I can't remember ever having seen that, to be honest. I mean, I would say that typically, people might. And again, it depends what you're selling, because the example with change tracking was very much that they valued it highly because of the data and the IP. Absolutely critical, that idea of what can you develop that's actual IP. Again, goes back to that whole thing about being a specialist. But if you were looking at typically somebody looking at a multiple of past profitability, 
then you might look at something like a maximum of, say, 40% of valuation upfront, and then potentially a three-year one-out. You mentioned before there were kind of two big examples of businesses. Was there always the other one? The other example, which I won't name because I haven't got their permission to name them, was in the production sector and, again, became a specialist, had a really interesting kind of area of specialism that they were very successful in. And again, they were an example where they sold to their major client because their major client had brought them in to do some work that they thought would be useful for their business and their clients. And then they really discovered that it was key, really important part of their business and their clients. And so that was, again, a slightly odd example of where we've ended up with somebody being bought by a client. But in a funny kind of way, with that example, where that's interesting, is that where that has a benefit is that you're going into an organization where you have a knowledge and expertise that that organization doesn't have. And I think that's somewhat different to perhaps somebody joining, you know, a much bigger production company, perhaps, or a much bigger type of agency where the buyer might be... That has pros and cons, I guess, because on the one hand, you could say, well, you're going into an organization where the people buying you don't understand what you do. But on the other hand, the virtue of that is that it means they go, you do this brilliantly. We're not going to interfere with you. So that was another kind of thing, a typical stroke, untypical example, if you like. And do you know much about how, well, it sounds like that was quite opportunistic. The client sort of thought, we really rate the supply, we'll put an offer in. Yes, I think that was less of a situation whereby the seller was kind of like, you know, it's time for me to move on. It wasn't one of those examples. It was more of an example where the buyer was, we really want this, we don't want other people to have it, and we'll rate it. So how could we develop those opportunities? But overall, that has been a positive experience for that seller. And also the other thing to bring in, a positive experience for other members of that team. Because that's the other thing that you've probably seen, and I've certainly seen, is that sometimes you'll have a situation whereby, and again, this is why I'm more interested often in the antecedents to a sale rather than the sale itself. You know, what are those key things you need to have in place? And that idea of knowing who your key people are and having those succession plans in place and having those really important people locked in so that they continue through that sale process. I mean, certainly my partner, Peter, had an example whereby he was involved in sale. One of the critical people were not locked in, and they walked out a bit within days taking clients with them because they'd been focused only on what are we going to get out of it, not looking at it from the point of view of what are the critical things making the company successful and how are we looking at and seeing kind of before. While I've got you here, I just wanted to let you know a little bit about me. After having acquired a TV commercials production company earlier this year, I'm currently doing a roll-up in the video production space and I'm looking for production companies to join my group. If you don't think you're quite there yet, I'm also spending some of my time advising smaller businesses on business growth and exit planning. So if you want to chat to me about that, drop me a line on LinkedIn. Here endeth the advert. What do you think are the main things that a business owner should be 
focusing on if they want to build their business to make it attractive for a sale? Well, you're right to say that fundamentally it's all the kind of things which should be making the business successful anyway. I mean, you could say, yeah, there's always that little tension between owners, between how much do I invest and grow and how much am I taking out? And I think any buyer is going to look at the company and think, have they just been rinsing it or have they been investing in it in order to kind of grow it and give it a strong platform to grow? Because buyers, but although this is the irony that is sometimes the valuation is based on past performance, buyers are also looking for what are they buying for the future? Past performance, really, kind of not so relevant. It's rather for the seller than not the buyer. So I would say that typically speaking, they would be looking for that really kind of strong value proposition. Why are your ideal clients buying from you and why is that successful? Then be looking for strong growth and potential, i.e. what do we think the future is, where you can go next. A strong reputation, which sounds a bit nebulous, but I think that idea of a company that has a reputation that other people admire, etc., etc., because those are often indications of good things going on, good cultural things going on, good market dominance going on. That talented and committed team, the idea of having that second tier of people who are going to run the company, because there's no point you going, oh, yes, I want to sell. Here we go. I'm in charge of all the clients, but as soon as I've got my own, I'm out of here. And you need a succession plan. And so that idea of having that talented and committed team that are kind of brought in to the future success of it, I think they'd be looking for. And then just some kind of decent processes and decent financial control. And I guess what's off-putting is, oh, I don't know, financial obscurity, weird deals, weird bits of ownership. Nobody wants to kind of ha start having a conversation about buying and then lift the lid and go, oh, God, that's weird. That's complicated. Yeah, I know exactly what you mean, what you're talking about. I've experienced some similar things <laughs> myself. Yeah, if it's nice and clean, that's definitely makes it more attractive. I was interested, actually, in the point around director's remuneration and getting that balance right, because I've seen it sort of go wrong on both sides where either someone is paying themselves not go wrong but I mean I've seen it sort of cause issues in the deal where you know if, if a founder is paying themselves too much money then it's difficult you know that has a big effect on the actual profit margin and if that founders continue to be employed in the business after a sale are you still going to be able to pay them that much that's way above market rate or conversely it can be the other way around they're paying themselves far too little inflating the profits and you say well actually that's not a market rate if you left we'd have to pay someone a lot more to do that so you know when kind of looking at figures of potential target companies your revenue and your EBITDA tells one story but the director's remuneration is such an important part of that to know what combination of salary dividends what the total package is that they've taken out because that really affects any kind of valuation calculation that you're going to do. Yes, absolutely. And I will concur with that. And those are the kinds of things, getting that in order and getting your house in order is the stuff that you need to be thinking about a couple of years out. You can't suddenly go, oh, you can, but I would suggest you should have a plan that goes, okay, in a number of years, we are now on a path whereby we're going to 
consolidate the things that we think are best about what we do and we're on a path to a sale and to have headlines of these are the things we know we need to have in order and some of those some of that situation around directors and about how they structure that it's a brilliant yeah and i think just clean accounts as well just sort of not running personal expenses through the business making sure there are no directors loans outstanding you know all of those things which you know when you're running a small business people just do end up with directors loans one way or the other either they've put money in or they've taken money out but it's just a bit of a red flag with the expect running personal expenses through businesses i've seen that a lot more in the us than i have in the uk actually there's a much more less safe approach to slightly more blurred lines between sort of business and personal I haven't seen that so much, but I do recognise what you're saying about directors' loans and just odd. Again, it's that idea of what's the track that you're on, you know, because some people, we've also been involved in situations where, to be honest, people haven't had that kind of big forward plan, but they have been in a situation where they're like, okay, I want to change something. I've taken this as far as I can, and I want to change something. And that can be a situation that can be beneficial. Certainly, I know of a situation where, and again, this was something that was really positive, where a small production company doing firing, one major share, two shareholders, one sleeping kind of partner, major shareholder. He really felt as though he had, was kind of coming to a point where he could think that he wanted to get out of the business, but she had a young, talented team that he really felt needed a home, deserved a kind of future and a home, if you like. And so his motivation in doing the opportunity, which was really well, they were friend specialists, interestingly, friend specialists, had some strengths and some key areas. And again, they sold to a company that was absolutely sat in that specialism, but offered a wider range of services across that specialism what they didn't have was the strength and video specialism that this company had and so his motivation to sell was to make sure that his young talented team had a place where they could grow and flourish very legitimate and reason to sell yeah absolutely that young talented team they're a bit older but they're still there and they've thrived it was the right thing to do for all of them that's a rather hot one, the example compared to some of the ones I've seen where it is a question of people have sold. I think that's my experience as well, is that I think people who are just looking for a big payday, that's one thing. But the majority of deals that I've seen are based on practicalities. It's the right fit. It's got to be a win-win for the buyer and the seller. It's got to be the right fit. It's got to benefit both parties. And the deal is sort of put together based on all sorts of different factors and if it's just financial that's probably won't work that's true so somebody did say to me when they were advising somebody they said yes there may well be things in the future where you're like oh really do i have to you know i used to run the whole thing now i'm reporting to a board and they're asking me for all this other stuff and whatever whatever and their advice they said just put a copy of the check next to your computer and have a look at that occasionally <laughs> in terms of thinking, why did I do this? So that's the kind of anecdote that speaks down. You have to get that balance right. I do think you have to think, 
why am I doing this? Is the fit right? And what's this going to feel like? Are there any sort of pitfalls to avoid or examples we've seen where you touched on one earlier on where you had two shareholders that weren't aligned? Examples where a deal has fallen through or the integration has not worked particularly well? Anecdotally, you can think of examples where people have kind of gone down a certain road and then realised, actually, we don't really know why we're doing this and we're not going to... Well, the other thing, uh, well, let's be accurate here. I think often there can be incredibly... There can be the potential for an overinflated idea of what the company's worth. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) And you're going to have that kind of seller's remorse or buyer's remorse. You know, you have to feel that the point, it's like any negotiation. You have to feel that at the point when you've done the deal and signed it, you're going, okay, I've done that. That's fine. I've agreed to that. And I'm now going to take it forward. You can't be in a position of going, okay, well, I've done it, but ooh, I didn't get the best price or it's kind of, you know, that's not going to work out well and say that kind of mentality. But I do think that people sometimes go into it with an overinflated idea of the value and what it's worth. And have you seen deals fall apart as a result of that? I can't bring any to mind, um, but it's more the fact that you kind of end up with that concern at the beginning when you think, oh, hang on, how is that going to work? If you think, if you're going into it, thinking that, then you're going to be disappointed and you're going to be looking for more, which could in itself put you in an awkward position because then you're potentially going to be under massive, massive pressure when it comes to what's demanded of you for results in order to get your earn out. And that in itself is a very unpleasant place to be. Do you think the market, the sort of M&A activity that you've seen over the last 20 years, do you think it's sort of changed at all? Are there any kind of trends that you can identify? Do you think there's more or less activity? It goes in waves, obviously, according to, and especially based on the types of companies that you and I have worked in, you know, whereby it becomes kind of like, oh, this is great. This is kind of the latest thing and everybody's making a load of money. And then it becomes ubiquitous and then it kind of falls off the cliff. And the only way to get out of that is to either be have massive scale and to make it more or and to be able to do various things, part of which can be to do with being part of a sale. One of the purposes you might have for a sale is that you're going to actually reduce some of your costs by being part of a bigger group whereby all those kind of core functions, HR, finance, etc., are done for you and you're not having to do those and that kind of has that economy of scale part of it. And so it kind of goes in waves a little bit. I think people now have a more savvy idea of actually what is anything worth and what are we buying, especially in terms of production companies. With the people that you work with, how many of them do you think are focused on an exit? At, at any one time, I'm probably working proactively on our strategy and being with, say, a handful of companies. And of the handful I'm working with at the moment, I would say that two of them are and are proactively looking at that, and three of them aren't. But that's partly because of the growth stages that 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 they're at. So a number of them are at the kind of the more the getting the engine running stage rather than the, I've been doing this now for 25 years, what happens next stage. It's just interesting because 
in my experience, a lot of people aren't focused on it at all. They're running their business and they're trying to grow it and they're taken up with the day-to-day. A hundred percent people are taken up with the day-to-day. And the other thing is that on the positive side, sometimes people genuinely do love and enjoy what they're doing and they are getting a good lifestyle out of it and good creatives and business and personal satisfaction. But I think my experience, there is a bit of a tipping point. People kind of go, they do their, I don't know, how long were you running? Uh, about 15 years. Oh, there's about, they, they get to that kind of 15 years point. Say you start your company in your 30s and you do your 15 years, yada, 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 your life, there's things going on in life, yada, yada, yada. And then you kind of look to the next 10 years and you go, oh, okay, what do I want to be, what do I want to be doing when I'm in my 50s? And financially, what does that mean as well? I mean, for me, that's just partly just a, you know, the first rule of investing is diversifying. And, you know, if your business is your only major asset, then that's a risk, you know, and people don't often look at it like that necessarily. You know, if you've been able to take money out of it and you've been able to kind of buy a property or put some money into your pension and kind of built up other assets elsewhere, then that's one thing. But I think, I mean, for a long time, my business, that was the only thing I owned. And you think, well, that's actually really, really risky. What if it fails? (laughs) You know? And that's an interesting way of putting it. I think another consultant we worked with said that you should be looking at the idea of rivers of income. I mean, that sounds lovely. It does sound lovely. And this is the interesting thing, isn't it? Whereby I think that's a really interesting point because I think from a personal point of view and your kind of personal financial portfolio, that diversification, I can totally understand that and that idea. I think sometimes that idea of diversification is where people feel that sense of being uncomfortable about developing a specialism or a niche. And I think those two slightly different things, I think, in my experience. Yeah, I think this might be an interesting one to touch on, just this idea of developing that niche and that specialism, because I know that's something you're a a big evangelist for. (laughs) I am, happily. Well, no, you know, with companies that have taken your advice and taken it on, what are the pros and cons of doing it? Has it worked out over the years? That's a really good question. And to be honest, looking back, if I look back over the 20 years, I was going to say maybe it's 50-50, but maybe not, maybe more 60-40, that 60%, yes, it really works. And then with the others, it doesn't. And sometimes you think, why doesn't it work with the others? Would it not have worked, to be honest, regardless of what they did? Sometimes there's an element of that. And especially because, again, I'm mostly working with production companies and creative agencies. They're driven by creative people. And sometimes for those creative people, the new idea, the new, new thing is what drives them. And so therefore, if you say, actually, if you became deeper and deeper in terms of your knowledge of a particular area, that will open more opportunities because you will be seen as masters of it and specialists in it that will give you access to markets enable you to charge a premium price it will give you more opportunities to develop ip more opportunities to develop a fantastic reputation more opportunities to attract the people who are similarly passionate about it so sometimes that can be 
something that people don't necessarily want to do. And occasionally, to be honest, it's definitely the case where we've ended up saying, okay, let's shape it around a certain proposition. And for whatever reason, that just hasn't been the thing that's worked out for them. Sometimes that's because the partners or shareholders in the business don't necessarily have the same view. I think also, if you're going to specialise, there's a level of commitment that is required. People like the idea of it, but when it comes to... There's a real hesitation, right? You think, yes, yes, it'll be great. Let's be famous for, you know, in X, whatever. But then they think, oh, but what we're going to lose out on all these other opportunities and there's all this work we're leaving on the table. Yes, absolutely. And people cut exactly that and that creative idea of kind of, oh, but if I do that, I won't be doing this. And it is that idea of what do you positively work towards and say yes to. So it certainly has been my passion. I've still got on the desk in front of me one of the books that I thoroughly recommend if somebody is interested in this idea. So I know that people are very keen on Simon Sinek from a purpose point of view, start with why. That's kind of okay, but can also lead people up a in my perspective. So the book I'm looking at is not a new book by any stretch of imagination. It's called The Discipline of Market Leaders. Choose your customers, narrow your focus, dominate your market. Michael Treacy and Fred Weir-Sema. And that's kind of just gives you that idea as to what are the potential advantages of that. And I've seen advantages in that for creative agencies and production companies as well as in other sectors. The other person that people could look at if they're interested in this area is a guy called Blair Enns. He's taken this idea and put some really good frameworks around it. And he's gotten loads of stuff, videos and whatever. And in fact, one of his good videos, I think it's called Choose Your Door. And he's particularly focused on this idea that people go, oh, but if I say yes to that, I'm saying no to a load of other things. And the idea behind Choose Your Door is to say, if you go down that door, it will open up opportunities for you that you can't yet anticipate. Yeah, I mean, the way I see it is that there's a difference between your sort of outbound sales and marketing and what you will accept coming in. So you could specialize on that outbound. This is how we're going to go to market. This is the type of work we're going to go after. That doesn't mean if a different type of work job comes in that we don't just do it. We're not just going to refuse work, you know? Absolutely. If somebody rushes towards you with a bunch of cash and says you are the only people you want to do this and you can do it profitably and not distract from other useful activities, then of course you're going to do it. It's just not necessarily. And occasionally those things are the things that make you think, actually, why did they think we were the ideal or obvious people to do that? And that can help you think about that and think whether there's an opportunity there and think why you were seen as being the ideal pledge to deliver that. So, yeah, I agree with you. It's a little bit like any of the bigger agencies. You know, the work that they're going to talk about is all the sexy, interesting stuff. They're not going to talk about all the churn that goes on in the background. I'm just going through it myself. I've just bought a majority stake in this production company that's done a lot of comedy work. And we're now working on developing, really kind of going for that specialism and becoming known in the comedy world. And, you know, whilst that's really exciting to sort of fully commit to something like that, there is some trepidation there as well. Just thinking, okay, well, 
with some clients, if that's really not going to be the right thing, that's not going to be what they want. But it's having the confidence to say, well, that's okay. Well, it's having the confidence to say, is you need to ask yourself the question, is there a marketplace big enough for that? Because you're right, it wouldn't be right for all clients. But why would you want to work with all clients? Unless you're Amazon, which you're not. Do you know what I mean? It's like, why would you want to work for all clients? You want to work for clients who are going to pay you a premium price, who value what you do, who are going to refer and recommend you, who are going to have a, a long-term profitable relationship with, rather than a kind of generic pool of everybody, I would suggest. So it's very inspiring. <laughs> it's turning into a bit of a, of a consultancy session for me. <laughs> As you so rightly pointed out, I am an evangelist. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay. Well, just sort of wrapping things up. Is there, are there any sort of, you know, the audience for this podcast are production company owners, creative agency owners who perhaps haven't really thought about an exit plan and are interested in learning more about it? Any kind of advice? I certainly would have a think across those kind of criteria around you know what is it that a buyer is potentially going to be looking for but i guess in a fun kind of way the other thing i would be thinking about is it might be an interesting exercise for company owners to actually do an exercise that said who would be our ideal buyer like an ideal client exercise absolutely yeah so if you said actually who would we love to be owned by and then ask yourself why. What would be the characteristics around that that would seem to us like a really good match? And I think that could give you, that should produce, as said, a really interesting criteria around the motivation for your sale, which is above and beyond the initial value of organisation. Is there anything else that you thought you might want to talk about? I think we have covered quite a lot. I think the tricky thing is I've certainly seen examples where people do end up thinking, my advice would be to say, don't leave it too late to start thinking about this. Don't kind of get to a point when you are really like, oh, I feel as though I want my work-life balance and my working life to change before you start thinking about it. Because then you're going to end up in a kind of fire sale situation and also potentially as we talked about before, it's the antecedents of the sale which make all the difference in terms of what you've set up and how you've decided to go about it. So I think as part of, no matter what kind of stage in companies at really, that process of thinking, okay, what do the next few years look like? What do we want? What's our vision for the next three years? I find it hard to think five minutes in the past, personally. Three years is the time scale in which you can kind of imagine something and get it done and also it will mean that you'll actually manage to get it done because most things take twice as long so imagine that three-year time scale and start to think about those things in advance and start to put them into place and start to have that sense of okay we're now 2023 what do we want to look like in 2026 what are those ideas and structures that we need to think about now because all those disciplines will help in the result. Absolutely, yeah. I think if you leave it too late, 
and then you're afflicted by a health issue or there's some personal reasons that you would, might need to leave the business or you're, you burn out, then you're, yes, it's a fire sale. You're not going to get the best terms. You're not putting your best foot forward. You're going to be lucky if you find a buyer that's going to somehow kind of appreciate that because it doesn't have the characteristics necessarily that people are looking for. Occasionally there are, um, but, but often not. So I, I think to have a good think about it and to be thinking some time uh, in advance and, and certainly with some of our clients, that's the path we're already on. So we've already set out, okay, what do we need to have in place and why? How does that match up? strongly with the more regular plan of, of growth, which frankly it nearly always does. Um and socially thinking. Great. Well on that note, I think we'll say thank you very much. <laughs> Did my pleasure, Barnaby. Thank you. Thank you very much for listening to the Exit Plan podcast. If you enjoyed it, please leave us a review to help other people find us. If you're wondering what's next for you and your business and want to chat about an exit plan, connect with me on LinkedIn.